0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is George Will, whose latest book is American Happiness and Discontents. All right, our first topic this week will be the state of the Democratic Party, a party which received a blunt and unequivocal rebuke this week from an unlikely source, that is the voters of one of the most progressive communities in America, namely the voters of San Francisco, who recalled three members of the school board. Why only three? Because those were the only three that they could possibly recall this time. Allison Collins was recalled with 79% of the vote. Board President Gabriela Lopez with 75%, and Vice President Faga Moliga by 72%. So there are all kinds of details about why this happened. I'm going to start with you, George Will. What happened here? And tell us what you think it portends. Well, the first thing that happened
1: was they were busy renaming 44 schools for reasons ranging from the dumb to the unintelligible while they were keeping the schools closed. And surprise, surprise, the parents thought this was disproportionate in some ways. What's interesting was that not that the members of the school board don't know this or that, and it isn't even that they don't know that they don't know this or that. It's that they don't know what it is to know something. For example, they they took Paul Revere's name off a of school because he led what's known as the Penobscot Expedition. And they assumed, without checking, that this was an attack on the Penobscot Indians, whereas in fact it was an attack, not a very successful one, on the Penobscot area occupied by the British. So they didn't have even the rudimentary facts straight. So I I think that's the heart of it. But what's happened during the lockdown and the turn to remote learning is a lot of parents are at home in their kitchen and their children set up their computers and the parents can hear the nonsense that's coming from the teachers. And in this sense, the pandemic's been very healthy for American education because parents have been stimulated to uh, not trust the government schools, which is a very healthy development.
0: Uh, Damon Linker, some people on the left, uh, there was some group called San Francisco Progressives that tweeted, white supremacy is alive and well in San Francisco.
2: Well, geez, the progressive left has a lot of work to do then.
0: (laughs) Actually, I think the most perfect detail of all of the stories that came out of the San Francisco School Board recall was that one of the things that offended them was that there was a mural in a high school that depicted George Washington. And the the mural was not in the taste that we would approve of in the 21st century, let's just say. I mean, there's an image of a dead Native American and so forth. But they decided that they were going to remove this mural, they were going to have it painted over. But in the end, this did not happen because they failed to file the proper environmental impact statement, <laughs> <laughs> which is the most California, San Francisco detail I thought of this whole story. Uh, yes,
2: every, everything in California, uh, <laughs> you, you need to get the proper environmental impact statement, even the most progressive of protests. Right. So, and,
0: but, but let me just ask you whether this response by the San Francisco progressives is indicative of a mindset that is broader than that in San Francisco, namely a tendency on the part of the stream left to automatically paint any objection to progressive politics as racism and reaction and white supremacy.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. And if you're far enough in one direction or the other on the political spectrum, then someone who is actually quite mainstream looks to be an extremist in the other direction. It's all a matter of the perspective when it comes to these things. So if you're very far on the progressive left, and then a kind of toast moderate can look like a fascist. So I think Democrats have a difficult rope to tread. There is a way in which... As long as the Republicans continue to be in the throes of kind of Trumpian insanity, there is a message to be sent for political campaigning purposes that a vote for the other side could empower people and ideas and ways of doing politics that are very bad for the country. And so there's a, a case to be made for invoking the extremes on the right and And that they might be empowered by a vote for a Republican. We saw some of that playing out in the Virginia governor's race a couple of months ago. And it will happen inevitably in a lot of the midterm races coming up, and it isn't always illegitimate to do that. By the same token, it can very quickly become ridiculous. and The fact that it didn't really work in Virginia is a sign that it may blow up in some Democrats' faces. And to have the ultra progressive left wing members of the board out in San Francisco to try this when the electorate out there has probably, I haven't looked up the statistic to see the percentage of Republican voters within the city of San Francisco, but it
0: has to be. I can tell you that in 2020, the vote for Joe Biden was 85% in San Francisco.
2: Okay, there we go, so we're we're talking like washington d c levels <laughs> uh but but, of course, there's the cultural spin on things out there that is probably even more extreme there and making it lopsided, and to insinuate that those voters are also like incipient, trumpian fascists is ridiculous and I think very much will blow up in the progressives' face. That's just not a serious response. And to the extent that more mainstream Democrats try that kind of a line, I think it's going to be very dangerous for them as we get closer to November.
0: Yeah. Linda, as Damon intimates, the school's issue and its many permutations could well be a sleeper or maybe not so sleeper issue In November, uh, first of all, there is a tremendous amount of anger out there about the fact that schools were closed for so long, and now there's perhaps some residual anger about that. Another thing that came up in San Francisco and has come up in New York and Virginia and many places is that there is a move on the part of progressives in various communities to change the admission requirement for magnet schools or schools that specialize in gifted education. And in San Francisco, there's a Lowell High School where they change the admission from a test and grades criteria to a lottery. And there are a number of Asian Americans were particularly angry about this and accused, uh, I think with reason, Alison Collins, who's one of the board members who was just recalled, of engaging in some racism. I mean, she had tweeted, for example, that Asian students who study very hard to try to get into these schools, she said, they use white supremacist thinking to assimilate and get ahead. So,
3: okay. Yeah. Yeah. Over to you. (laughs) Gee, surprise, surprise, they're trying to keep out high-scoring Asians from these elite schools. And we're seeing it in many places around the country at the elite high school level, where, as you suggest, in places like Virginia, Fairfax County, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, also in San Francisco, also in New York City, schools that, frankly have been the salvation for many, particularly immigrant students, who come here, work very hard, study very hard, and then manage to test into these elite programs. They don't have parents that can necessarily afford to send them to private schools where they would get a top-notch education. And it's not just Asians, by the way. There are lots of immigrants from Africa, from Latin America, and from elsewhere that again, spend their time studying and and get into these schools and get an education, which is very comparable to that, that would have been at an elite prep school. So the fact that many Chinese Americans live in San Francisco, that they were not happy with the changes to the Lowell School in San Francisco isn't surprising. And I couldn't help but laugh when we started talking about this topic You will certainly remember, as will George will, and I bet Bill as well, and maybe Damon too, the old phrase, San Francisco Democrat, (laughs) which uh, Gene Kirkpatrick coined and used at the 1984 Republican Convention to talk about a certain kind of Democrat that was not very pro-American, that was very soft on communism. It was a derogatory term. Well, San Francisco Democrat suddenly has an entirely different meaning now, and I guess that's all. the good.
0: Yeah. I mean, we should say that this is a healthy sign that the liberals are pushing back against the progressives, which is what we want to see. So I'm going to turn to you on this, Bill Galston. The Democratic Party is struggling with how to handle its left wing. The uh, DCCC put out a memo or didn't put it out, but it was leaked and referred to in the press over the last couple of weeks, suggesting that Democratic candidates need to figure out how to respond better to the, quote, alarmingly potent, unquote, GOP uh, appeals to social and cultural issues. And among those are schools, education, crime, immigration, and other things.
4: As George Will would say, indeed. (laughs) But uh, Linda, you awaken some very painful memories. (laughs) <laughs> with your reference to San Francisco Democrats, the uh, record, alas, will show that I was Walter Mondale's policy director during his presidential <laughs> campaign. I was there Bill. in San Francisco when a particularly flamboyant San Franciscan by the name of Sister Boom Boom b- became a media <laughs> sensation, giving Alas, a visual correlate to Jean Kirkpatrick's lethal phrase. In, in some ways, this struggle between the liberals and the progressives, sometimes overt, sometimes subterranean, has been going on ever since. The progressives have been particularly prominent during the past few years They represent a very small share of the electorate and a much smaller share of the Democratic Party than they think, but they garner an enormous amount of attention, and they have done an enormous amount of electoral damage to the party. Representative Jim Clyburn, who knows whereof he speaks, estimates that the defund the police slogan cost the Democrats 12 seats things didn't improve in 2021, uh, so much so that Speaker Pelosi went on national television to declare that defund the police is not the policy of the Democratic Party, that our aim is public and community safety. And when George Stephanopoulos raised the issue of Cory Bush and other progressives who are unrepentant in their advocacy of defund the police. Uh, Pelosi very tartly made it clear that Cory Bush speaks for herself and not for the Democratic Party as a whole. As for the DCCC memo, which has been making the rounds in Democratic circles for the past couple of weeks until you know it finally emerged from its Sammys dot existence, that is a warning, in a kind of language and with the kind of specificity and credibility that will wake up the Democratic Party to the danger on the cultural front, if anything does. Some of us have been banging this drum for a long time, but my party, alas, is a slow learner and has to relearn lessons that I thought it had learned 30 years ago.
0: George, I'm going to come back to you on this because Bill says and of course, he's right that Joe Biden has said he's not for defund the police. And Nancy Pelosi made a stern comment that uh, Cory Bush spoke only for herself. But, you know, I guess one lesson that can be learned from the Trump experience is there is benefit to saying something a thousand times, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, he just kept hammering, hammering, hammering. And so his voters got the message. For Joe Biden to give a a press conference at two o'clock in the afternoon every six months and say the right thing, and for Nancy Pelosi to make a tart retort, that's not enough, right?
1: Exactly. Tail end of my friend Pat Moynihan's luminous career. He said one of the things he'd learned is how often and how simply you have to say something in order for it to stick. And this is what the progressives are doing they're saying something constantly. And clearly, and this is what they're saying, I think the country hears from them, you should be ashamed of your country. Surprise, that's deeply offensive to most people. They don't like the democratic policies right now, crime in the streets and chaos in the southern border and inflation and all the rest. Those, however, you can change your policies. Once you become identified with the message, be ashamed of America, I don't know how you get out from under that. Bill says we well, don't we learn? No one ever learns anything, Bill. We have to <laughs> we have to do this. The Republicans have their own flat learning curve. And we'll get to that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But <laughs> I, I just think that's what the country hears.
0: Yeah, I think so too. All right. Moving on to the Republicans. So the Republican Party has been showing every sign of insanity over the last number of years. But the reason we chose to talk about it this week is because there were a couple of little green shoots. Bill Galston sent us all a little note, drawing attention to a finding in a Quinnipiac poll that suggested that 53% of Trump voters oppose the idea of pardons for January sixth rioters. And Bill, I think the one you were referring to was the question, do you think Trump was right or Pence? Donald Trump wanted uh, Mike Pence to overturn the election results on January 6th. And according to the Quinnipiac results, 52% said that Pence was right versus 35% who said Trump. So if you'd like, Bill, make the case for the Republican Party trending back toward more sanity.
4: You want me to make that case?
0: Yeah, I want you to make that case.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, let me just make the obvious point that there is a difference, qualitative as well as quantitative, between green shoots coming up through cracks in the concrete and a well-tended golf course. And uh, so I am glad to see that some rank and file Republicans are having second thoughts about Donald Trump and all of his works and ways. But I'm not going to believe that anything has changed fundamentally until I see the outcome of Republican primaries over the next few months. And it doesn't look to me as though the anti-Trump forces in the Republican Party are making very much headway despite Mitch McConnell's best efforts. And having argued against your premise, I will now argue against my answer. It is certainly true that you can see a lot of signs that Republicans, including Republicans who are sympathetic to the general reorientation of the Republican Party that Trump has pulled off, are very skittish about renominating him in 2024, because they believe, rightly, I believe, that public distaste for his character or lack thereof will detract very significantly from the overall message that he sends and the reorientation of the Republican Party that he stands for and which they, by and large, support. The country club wing of the Republican Party, the pro-business wing of the Republican Party, is much, much weaker than it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. And I don't see any forces uh, that will reverse that. But I suspect that if most Republicans were given a choice between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump as the 2024 Republican nominee, it would go well for DeSantis if it were a secret ballot.
0: Damon, George says that a lot of Americans hear a message from progressives that they ought to be ashamed of their country and they recoil from that. Part of that is due, I think, to frankly, Republicans' skill at painting the whole Democratic Party, tarring it, if you will, with the brush of the far left, and saying this is all Democrats are wild eyed Marxists or identitarians and reverse racists and so forth. And honestly, I have to say, the Democrats are not very good at painting the Republican Party with its worst elements. So, for example, the Republican Party at the moment has made one of their greatest boogeymen is Dr. Fauci. Various elected officials are pushing quackery, outright quackery like ivermectin and spreading conspiracy theories about the damage that vaccines do. The governor of Florida has interfered in a very heavy-handed fashion in what private businesses are allowed to do to protect the safety of their own workforce and customers. And they've been really unbelievably irresponsible and borderline authoritarian on their approach to January 6th. So do you think that part of the problem is that the Democrats are not taking it to Republicans about their craziness?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think about this a lot myself and I don't have a great answer to the question other than to kind of affirm with you that it is a kind of mystery. I don't know if it's that Democrats are just worse at hardball politics or if the alignment of voters in the two parties in relationship to where districts are and so forth make it more difficult for Democrats to unite on a consistent anti-Republican message in a way that doesn't work in the reverse. And I think it also on a different dimension kind of goes the other way where – Republicans can all get behind attacking a certain kind of leftism that we were talking about in San Francisco. The the whole party can get together and wanting to throw tomatoes at that. But I think it has something to do with the fact that there is a real cultural divide among Democrats about how hard to hit the far-right cultural views of a lot of Republicans. And that's because the Democratic Party does have those factions of very far-left culturally speaking opinion in a lot of urban areas. And then the party also has kind of Midwest working class post-industrial voters, kind of old union Democrats who are much more conservative on social issues and cultural issues. And so there's this fear that they're going to actually alienate some of their own base by hitting the right too hard. Then there's also the fact that the Republican Party is on a certain issues as really pretty deeply and genuinely divided in a way that can give the party a lot of plausible deniability that, again, seems to work better than it does for Democrats. So, for instance, if you're a Democrat and you're kind of a more centrist Democrat, you could really go after the Republicans for being kind of Tucker Carlson, withdrawal from the world and foreign policy. You don't want to stand up to Putin. You don't want to stand up to China. But a lot of the party doesn't hold that position, especially in Congress. The elected representatives who are Republicans in both houses, especially the Senate, tend to be much more aggressive on foreign policy and do want to stand up to both. So they can always say, well, look, look at all these senators and congressmen saying something else. Similarly, on immigration, you have similar fissures, really deep fissures in the party where really only like... 25% of the country wants to cut immigration, and that's about half of the Republican Party. But that half is more passionate about that view than the more open immigration half of the party is. And they have Donald Trump on their side. So just the way the issue matrix, as it will, breaks down, it creates difficulties for the Democrats. It divides the Democrats to try to attack the Republicans in a way that it doesn't divide Republicans when they try to attack Democrats. And again, the exact reason for why is is a complicated one. They have a much
0: larger coalition. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So Linda, this was not a good week news-wise for Donald Trump. Now, I personally think that all these legal problems that he has probably wouldn't make any difference. He's sort of like James Michael Curley, the mayor of Boston who was elected, I think, from his jail cell. Um, <laughs> but I, do, I love what a biographer said about him. He said that he was a disaster mitigated only by moments of farce. Um, <laughs> so, it sounds sounds like an apt description. Yeah, sounds familiar. <laughs> Anyway, but this week, Trump's accountant issued a statement saying that they will not stand behind any of the financial statements that they put out for him between, I think, 2011 and 2020 or some such thing. And um, you thought that was pretty significant. So I want to hear you on this topic and on the topic in general of
3: where Trump stands in the party. Well, first of all, in terms of, of what you said about whether this will hurt him with his base, no, absolutely not. It will not hurt him with his base. However, there's more than the base. First of all, is two other things that he has to worry about. One is that he stay outside um, Jail, And of course, some of the investigations are civil investigations. They're not criminal, although there is a criminal investigation ongoing in New York. But the big news this week about Mazers, the uh, accounting firm that he has used forever, basically walking away and saying, we don't stand by anything we ever put in any of our financial documents for this man over a decade. If the Trump organization were a publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange, The day that happened, uh, the stock would have gone into sort of a penny stock status. There would have been a collapse in the stock because everyone who invests basically looks at financial documents that are prepared by certified public accountants. They give their imprimatur. They say that the numbers that you look at to make a judgment about whether or not to invest or not are accurate. And so if Again, if it was a public company, it would have been a disaster for him. It's not a public company, though. It's a private company. And so whether or not he inflated, as he clearly did, uh, his assets and he basically pretended not to have debt, except that he would claim to the IRS when it came time to do his tax filings. Uh, that he was making no money, and that he was loaded with debt, and that most years he was not profitable. So it it does remain to be seen what the long-term effect of this is going to be. Some of it is, I would assume, if he misstated documents that he used in loan applications, if he misstated things on his taxes, obviously, uh, then he's going to be in trouble in terms of the law, because that's illegal. You can't do that. I guess the the big issue, though, with Donald Trump is that the more we learn about this supposedly brilliant businessman, the more we realize that he was nothing but a huckster and he really did not have business acumen. Uh, He ran a small operation, small in the terms of it wasn't a big, complex organization with lots of employees. It was, by and large, a branding operation. He mostly sold his name, and he sold it for a very high price, so he made money doing it. But, you know, so many people who supported him and to this day support him think that they elected this brilliant businessman. And to the degree that that sheen begins to fade and that people begin to realize, gee, he really wasn't worth all that much money. He really was not all that successful as a businessman. There may be some people that it will peel off, but by and large, I think this is more his legal troubles and his own financial troubles, because it does not appear that he is getting rich, except in his post-presidency, he's getting rich hawking things again, you know, selling his uh, knickknacks and presidential seal cups and pens and, you know, all that kind of stuff and making money that way. But he's certainly not making money in real estate. And he doesn't seem to have made a whole lot of money in real estate, even going back a couple of decades. Well, he can always hit up his fans
0: for contributions to stop the socialism and stop the
3: steal. And oh, by the way, those documents that disappear down to Mar-a-Lago, including the love letters from Kim Jong-un. I'm a hundred percent sure that the reason he took them is that he was going to monetize them at some point. He was going to sell them. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, and make money off that of them. That makes sense. He, he he knew something. Something had some worth. And that I would not at all be surprised. Yeah, I'm
0: sure at that. that is a really good point. I'm sure you're right. Okay. By the way, though, he did know that it's against the law to destroy federal oh, documents yeah. because he wanted Nancy Pelosi arrested for it when she tore up his uh, State of the Union address. But anyway, correct. George, I'm just going to circle back to you on one other point, because I noticed in your piece about Senator Lisa Murkowski and about how she's not in much trouble in Alaska, at least I think that was the import of your column. But a big reason for that is that Alaska adopted ranked choice voting. And you didn't dwell on it in the piece, but I'm curious to hear your views on it because we've discussed it on this podcast before, and it does seem to be a way to disempower the tiny percentage of voters who vote in primaries and have disproportionate effects of, of polarizing our politics.
1: Yes. Democracy is not just about numbers, it's about intensity. And intense, compact minorities do very well in populist and plebiscitory systems, such as referenda and initiatives in California, and such as, all around the country, caucus states and primaries that are low turnout. Alaska has a primary in August. As Murkowski said to me, that's toward the end of the fishing season and on the eve of the hunting season. Alaskans are outdoors, they're not watching television, and they're not going to primaries often. The kind of people who go to primaries are the the fire-breathing, political, intense activists, So this was a way to not disenfranchise, but to dilute Mm -hmm. the effect of that cohort, and to say, look, we want a system that is friendly to people who are not obsessed, who can can be counted upon to come out twice. So basically what what they've done is they've said, we're gonna give people two bites at the apple, have a jungle primary where everyone, for all the parties are on the same ballot, the top four go on to the November election, during which voters can rank their choices and they sort that out and come up with a winner.
0: We'll be discussing this more on Beg to Differ because uh, this has such tremendous potential and actually it would not require that many states adopting a ranked choice voting system to be able to create a caucus within, say, the United States Senate of moderates who would agree to work together. So that is a a strong uh, reform possibility. Okay, thank you for that, and we'll turn to our last topic. All right, so I'm going to turn first to you on this, Bill Galston. Inflation—you could say it's the skeleton at the feast—but I'm not sure most Americans feel like they're at a feast at the moment. But um, the latest number is that it's it's now running at 7.5 percent. You're worried about this, I know. To whom do you assign responsibility? our inflation rate which is higher than other OECD countries. I mean it's a worldwide phenomenon but we have a couple ticks higher maybe three uh, than other comparable countries
4: mm-hmm. This isn't simple uh, but I'll try to be straightforward and short. First of all, I just published a piece this morning at Brookings rounding up the survey research on this issue and it is pretty clear number one, that it has risen to the top of the American people's list of concerns. And number two, they don't think the president of the United States is paying enough attention to it. And number three, they are not confident that any of the proffered remedies or very many of them are going to make a very big difference. And I'm afraid they're probably right about that. And they are very uncomfortable with the ones that would make a difference. For example, they loathe the idea that the Federal Reserve Board will raise interest rates significantly. And when you consider a report that came out just today documenting skyrocketing household debt, particularly on credit cards, it's easy to see why they're not thrilled by the idea of higher interest rates, but they're going to get them. Yeah. There's no question about the fact that the pandemic and its consequences for production, for transportation of goods, for the labor force has been a a major cause of the elevated inflation that we're seeing. And unfortunately, it's now feeding on itself. Uh, If you look at the agricultural sector, for example, farmers are Experiencing double digit increases in all of their input costs. And many farmers will be very happy to break even this year because they don't think that commodity prices will be high enough to compensate them for their increased costs. In addition, the combination of very loose monetary policy and an orgy of public spending, which was necessary at the beginning but which continued for too long you know, has contributed to the too much money that is chasing too few goods. And the argument in in favor of being very cautious about additional deficit increasing public spending is powerful now, powerful publicly, and I think will continue to be as, as long as the inflation is, is so high. Uh, so Inflation at this point is a little bit like the film Murder on the Orient Express, if you've seen it. (laughs) Yes. Based on a famous Agatha Christie novel. There are lots of knife wielders here. Everybody's guilty. (laughs) Everybody's guilty to some extent. uh, And I would not expect inflation to describe the same curve as the incidence of Omicron infections has, you know, a huge mm-hmm. increase followed by a precipitate plunge. That is not going to happen, in my opinion. And when the Federal Reserve Board predicts that at the end of this year, inflation will be down to two and a half percent, I didn't take that seriously when that forecast was issued. And I would find it even more difficult to take it seriously now. And I bet the Fed sort of wishes it hadn't said that. But in the meantime, it is a huge problem for President Biden and the Biden administration. And unfortunately, I have discovered that there are too few people who are old enough to satisfy two criteria. Number one, they experienced the inflation of the 1970s, and number two, their memory isn't shot so they can still remember it. <laughs> uh, and uh, because I've I've found that people who did live through it are, I think, more more balanced and sensible in their appraisal of what's going on now than people who experienced 40 years of declining inflation and declining interest rates.
0: The average man learns from his mistakes. The fool does not learn from his mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. Well, um, you would think, that you wouldn't have had to live through the inflation of the 1970s to have learned the lessons. You know, there's these little thing called books. But anyway. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. You think people are still reading books? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, Damon, I, you know, you're, you're, you write a lot about trust in institutions, the eroding faith in experts and various things, which is true. And, and it is notable, isn't it, that this inflation was predicted by very, very few people. I think you can count them on one hand, and they're all taking bows, much deserved. But I mean, the Federal Reserve Board, which is, you know, their primary task in this world—a bunch of PhD economists—is to anticipate inflation and to hit <laughs> it off. Um, they didn't see it coming. They kept saying, "No, oh, everything's fine." By the way, the same people who had been flooding the economy with cash for way too long since the uh, financial crisis.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what happened is that after the the financial crisis of 2008, we had what at least some of us at the time, thought was a a big kind of rescue package of close to a, a trillion dollars and all kinds of other things being done and quantitative easing that went on for years. And there were some people back then who worried that this would lead to inflation and it never happened at all. And I think what happened is what often happens is that people kind of overlearned the lesson of their error. And therefore, as we came through the pandemic and Washington, I think, rightly acted much more aggressively even than they did back in 2009 in response to the huge pandemic shutdown of parts of the economy they thought, well, we could pretty much spend anything, and that won't give us inflation either, except for Larry Summers and a few other people who were skeptical of this. So I think uh, the, the lesson is that um, probably the the best is, as as we learn from certain childhood stories, uh, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Those are the kind of uh, the, the Goldilocks uh, formula that really we probably did overdo it this time. And then, of course, as Bill said, And others recognize this intermixed with the kind of unique supply chain problems that we got because of the uniqueness of the pandemic. I mean, who knew if you shut down large segments of the economy, it gets really complicated opening it up again. Because mm. you know we live in a very complex world with supply chains snaking all over the place, and once parts of that break down and stop moving, getting them moving again creates all kinds of knock-on problems that have contributed a lot to this. Um, that would be the part of it that is affecting everybody globally, as you noted at the top of this segment, uh, Mona. With it's true that uh, inflation is up around the world, but it, it is somewhat worse. And I think this somewhat is a function of the very aggressive response that we had to the pandemic with all the spending, especially, I would say, I mean, just in terms of temporality, the big uh, spending package that passed shortly after Biden came in. uh, The American Rescue Plan. Right, which was only a few months after we had just passed another $900 billion spending package, which was itself less than a year after another multi trillion dollar one. So did we need another infusion of all that money (laughs) only a few months later? Probably if you could kind of bracket the political dynamic, which made it imperative to do it right away and just do what would be best, it probably would have been better to wait till the summer and see. But unfortunately, that isn't the way things unfold in Washington. A new president comes in, you got the first 100-day imperative, you have lots of pent-up demands of the, the new party in power. And what we got was another big spending package, and it probably uh, pushed us over the. Rest line.
0: Yeah. Linda, I'm not asking you for a definitive number on the the contribution of the immigration restriction, but I want to know whether as a general matter, you think that one possible contributor to our inflation problem now might well be the crackdown on immigration during the Trump years, because one of the reasons that goods aren't moving is not just that it Takes longer to make them, and the and the demand you know too much money tasting too few years. but there aren't enough workers, uh, and uh, there there aren't enough immigrants uh, absolutely that have been allowed
3: in. Do, do, yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, look, the fact is we have a labor shortage in the United States right now, and the labor shortage cuts across most uh, industries, but it is particularly acute in some of the areas where immigrants fill a very important niche in the labor market. And it wasn't just in the Trump administration, although that we did see a decline uh, in the number of immigrants living in the U.S. in the Trump years. And we certainly saw efforts to control the number of people coming in. It's continued in into the Biden years. I mean, if you listen to Republicans talk, you think we have open borders and people are just flooding across. I, I think the new numbers for this last month, preliminary numbers are about 150,000 people came into contact with Border Patrol. Well, most Americans hear that and they go, oh, my goodness, 150,000 people crossed illegally into the United States and are living here. Well, that's not what happens. The overwhelming majority of them, in fact, get returned. And even those who file claims, you know, for asylum, et cetera, end up having to stay in Mexico. So we do have fewer people getting in, the, the population of people living in the United States who are present illegally in the United States is not going up we have not seen any any great increases in that and that means there are fewer of those people taking jobs and they would be taking jobs stocking shelves picking uh, harvest uh, you know all of the agricultural industry is suffering greatly from the want of, of workers the meat industry meat is also yeah mm. is also suffering so yes I think there is a big role that immigration plays in all of this, but it is the single most difficult thing to solve in terms of any kind of policy decision because it has become so incredibly politicized. Too few Americans truly understand uh, the issue. They have really very little understanding of even our immigration laws. You know, they keep saying, well, people should come here, but they should come legally and they should wait in line. There are no lines. Uh, We have, you know, most of the people that we even admit legally each year are already present in the US. They are visa overstayers, or they're people who had work visas and are transitioning into permanent resident status. Our immigration system is a mess. But I will say, and I I wanted to sort of back up to something that Bill Galston and uh, Damon talked about, and that is the political issue of inflation. You know, it's it's absolutely true that uh, President Biden cannot himself control inflation. Any attempt by the federal government to come in and, and impose, you know, wage and price controls would be disastrous and counterproductive. But he can not change the way that he talks about immigration, and I was very distressed. When once again, after having attacked Pete Ducey from Fox News for using the inflation word uh, during a news conference, in an interview with Lester Holt on NBC, Lester Holt asked him about inflation and he called him a wise guy. One of the things that Joe Biden can learn to do is to be sympathetic that people are very worried about inflation and that he is president of the United States, cannot simply dismiss it and act as if this is a fantasy or it's a simply a means to attack him. He's got to change the way he talks about this issue. Right. So, George, of course,
0: we have heard from people on the left of the Democratic Party who seem to have a kind of cartoonish uh, understanding of how prices work. So, Elizabeth Warren tweeted out something about meat prices and said that the prices had gone up because of corporate greed. Um, And of course, Bernie Sanders, same thing. Gas prices, highest level in seven years, while ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and BP made nearly $25 billion in profits last quarter. And then he says, the problem is not inflation. The problem is corporate greed, collusion, and profiteering, and so forth. And uh, our friend Brian Reidel replied, uh, oh, if only we could return to May 2020 money, when national gas prices fell to $1.93 a gallon because, what, oil companies decided they love us and don't care about making money? Is that how pricing works? <laughs> so good for good for Brian. But uh, but George, I do want to ask you about, uh, we, I mean, comment on anything you've heard, but also I want to ask you about one tool that the president does actually have and that unfortunately this president has shown lamentable disinclination to use, and that is he can lower tariffs. That's one thing he can do unilaterally. So what do you make of that?
1: Well, tariffs obviously raise the cost of consumption. And that's yep. that's their point, yes. is, uh, is to protect domestic industries from competition that could drive down prices. But the president is a protectionist because his party is a protectionist. As far back as the 90s, Bill Golston will remember this. Bill Clinton, in my judgment, his greatest achievement was NAFTA, yep. which he got only because he had ample Republican support to get it through. But let me say this about inflation. It will not surprise you to know that I am a hardcore Milton Friedmanite, and I believe that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That means that, in a sense, I am glad there's inflation right now, because if there were not, if you could have this gusher of spending and trillion-dollar tranches And it didn't produce inflation, there'd be no prudential reason to restrain the government's ever larger grasp of the resources of society for political ends. Mm. So, inflation is a political check on the excesses of government. Nothing radicalizes a middle class nation more thoroughly and faster than inflation. That is, the government now has fiat money, nothing backing it up except the faith in the government. It loves fiat money. But in fact, that means it is absolutely responsible for maintaining it as a store of value, and it's not doing that. That's probably the fundamental domestic task of government is to protect the currency as a store of value. You said, Mona, a moment ago, gosh, no one saw this coming. A, we Friedmanites did see it coming. Right. No, I said, except Uh, for a few people. Right. yeah. Yeah. But second, when's the last time they saw these things? They're, they're always talking about the foreseeable future. Interest rates are going to be low for the foreseeable future. Mona, yep. in May 2008, they didn't foresee September 2008. <laughs> a year ago, they didn't foresee today's inflation. Yep. The foreseeable future is uh, about, I don't know, six hours, 10 hours. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just we, we should not expect these people to understand, particularly because they have a huge incentive Not to understand, because it's a damper on the fun of spending other people's money. Finally, remember this about debt. Debt is an enormous incentive to have inflation. We're piling up all this debt in 2022 dollars. Let's pay it off in 2032 dollars, it'll be worth 25% less. So inflation becomes slow-motion repudiation, and we have now built into our system an enormous incentive to have inflation.
0: Right. I'm not positive, though, that works because it's so much against the short-term interest of the politicians who will be punished for creating inflation. So I don't know. But certainly in the long run, you're right that it does make paying off the debt easier. I'm not sure they think it through that way, though, George. (laughs) All right. We now come to the final segment. So we have reached our highlight and lowlight of the
3: week section, and I will start with Linda Chavez. Well, I have a couple of highlights, uh, and these should be very near and dear to your heart, Mona, because you have been somebody who has been uh, sounding the alarm on this issue, and that is the Electoral Count Act and attempting to reform the Electoral Count Act. And Two voices, at least, weighed in on this issue uh, this week. Uh, One was former Judge J. Michael Ludig, who was on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, is somebody who is revered in conservative circles. And he is urging that a number of Republican senators can vote to reform the Electoral Count Act. And he had some provisions within this op-ed which appeared in the New York Times, in which he talked about what he would like to see done. And it was all uh, in the context of the conservative case for avoiding a repeat of January 6th. And then today, there was a similar Wall Street Journal editorial by the editorial board there preventing another January 6th. The best fix for the Electoral Count Act is to take Congress out of it. I'm not sure that uh, Democrats will entirely go along with some of the recommendations by the journal or by Michael Ludig, but I think that the very fact that you are now seeing conservative voices weighing in and saying we must do something about the Electoral Count Act if we want to prevent another January 6th uh, situation, I think is a very good sign and I consider it a highlight. Well, thank you for that. If only they would take my advice on family structure.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, Bill Galston, I know you've got to run, so you're next.
4: Thanks, Mona. As people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis know, I pay a lot of attention to survey research, not all survey research, but high quality survey research that asks good questions. While we were on, The air today, the Quinnipiac University survey outfit released a very interesting set of findings, and I'll give you my highlight. Here's one of the questions Thinking back on American history that you were taught in school, would you say that it reflected a full and accurate account of the role of African Americans in the United States? Or do you think that what you were taught in school fell short? 27% of Americans think they got a full account. 66% of Americans said that the American history they were taught uh, did not give a full account of the African-American role in our history. And I find that a very hopeful sign that converges with a lot of other evidence I've been collecting. To the effect that there is a middle ground in the American history wars that is very widely supported. Yep. Uh, and uh, I know I helped design a survey that was released last fall that found overwhelming support, more than 80% support for a way of teaching American history. That included the warts and low points, as well as the smooth skin and high points. And if we could just put down our weapons and talk about this for a little while, I know that seems visionary, but if we could, I am convinced that we could find a middle ground, a kind of American history curriculum that the overwhelming majority of Americans would be satisfied with.
0: Bill, that's a great point. I'm not sure he was referring to this particular controversy, but it reminds me of a line from uh, Ramesh Panuru, who said that our debates are characterized by agreeing at the top of our voices. (laughs) We don't necessarily know we're agreeing, but I agree with you that there is a wide overlap, a wide middle Even among Republicans, you will see survey data saying, yes, absolutely, they want the history of slavery and and Jim Crow and discrimination to be taught. They draw the line at critical race theory, which they have a different view on, and so do I. So anyway, I think that's a really good, good point. All right. Damon Linker. Well,
2: this was uh, quite a whiplash week for those of us uh, monitoring the somewhat dire situation on the border of Ukraine and Russia. There were at least a few hours where things seemed to be a a little bit more hopeful. It looked like maybe Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, was withdrawing troops from the area and uh, diplomacy was proceeding with lots of airplanes flying among European capitals. But uh, things have uh, then more recently taken a darker turn. Uh, I won't go through all of the details, but the especially dark turn was something that uh, was released later in the week where – A letter that we had sent to Russia in response to a lot of uh, Russia's concerns about security in the region. Russia released their response to this, and it was not good. It was not simply demands from Russia that NATO membership no longer be held out as a possibility for Ukraine and Georgia, which has been a long standing issue between uh, the parties and was a big subject of the memo that we sent Russia, and they have now responded to. But there were added demands now. Now Russia is saying, that there should be no NATO or U.S. military assets stationed in countries that were once part of the Soviet Union. And they're also demanding that NATO, quote, military capabilities be removed from all countries that have joined the alliance since 1997. I would say that this is either a massive miscalculation on Putin's part, if we assume that he actually is just trying to negotiate and wants to avoid a war. Or that it is probably the biggest pretext we've seen yet that he really does want a war. Because the fact of the matter is, even though, as people know, listening to this podcast, I might be a a little bit more uh, skeptical of some arguments in a hawkish direction on foreign policy. This is an absolute non-starter. There is no chance in hell that the United States or NATO are going to accept those terms as even the starting point of negotiations with Mr. Putin. And so I fear we may be closer to war than ever. So my low light, Vladimir Putin.
0: Yeah, very, very concerning. All right. George Will.
1: My highlight is the Biden-Blinken team's crisis management here. Putin is the aggressor. Therefore, Putin sets the agenda and the timing of all this. And we, we can't blame Biden and Blinken for being in a reactive mode. But being in a reactive mode, they behave very well. And they have breathed new life and purpose into NATO and into the European community as a whole, almost given meaning to Europe beyond a geographical expression. They're turning, helping turn Europe into a political expression in response to, to Putin. And I think that's the highlight of the week. The low light, I got two of them. This was the week when we were supposed to hear the four most beautiful words in the English language, which are pitchers and catchers report. (laughs) And uh, they were supposed to go down on February 15th. They're not going because of labor troubles. That as players and management fight over economic issues, whereas in fact the product they're putting on the field is universally disliked, longer games with less action, and uh, so the, the baseball look, looks to me like a, a, a sick patient who goes to a doctor and says, I have metastasizing cancer and I want to treat it aggressively. But first, I want a knee replacement. <laughs> they're, just not, they're just not dealing with, with the big problems. But that's the second most awful thing of the week. The most awful thing is that the most repulsive senator, do I need to Identified Josh Hawley. No. I guess I just did. <laughs> uh, the most repulsive senator is now selling a swag. Yes. A mug with his picture on it, giving the clenched fist solidarity salute to those who are, who at the time he did it, just a few minutes away from attacking the Capitol. That's a low light that's pretty hard to beat.
0: <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Uh- By the way, I saw on Twitter that those mugs are made in China. Um, Of course course they are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, okay, so mine, thank you for that, uh, all of them. All right, mine is, um, everyone is familiar with the worst member of the House of Representatives, that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, she has a primary opponent, so that is one highlight of the week that she has an opponent. But the second highlight of the week is the opponent is holding a fundraiser at apparently the same country club that Marjorie Taylor Greene just joined. But one of the organizers said, yes, gazpacho will be served. (laughs) So I thought that was worthy of note. (laughs) all right with that i want to thank george will for joining us always a highlight to have you with us george and i want to thank all of you for listening our wonderful producer is katie cooper our wonderful sound engineer jonathan siri mose we thank our listeners and we will return next week as everyone.